Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is The Energy Show with REI Energy. Energize your investments and maximize your tax deductions. Here's Mike Maselli. This is Mike Maselli. And this is the Energy Show with REI Energy, where we're energizing your investments and maximizing your tax deductions. Today, we've got a great guest, Daniel Jurgen. Daniel is a highly respected authority on the energy, international politics, and economics. And he is the Pulitzer Prize-winning and best-selling author of The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. Dan has a new book coming out called The New Map. Today, we're going to discuss how politics, foreign policy, and COVID will reshape the future of America's energy sector. Dan, it's an honor to have you on the show today. Well, Mike, great to join you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Dan, I actually started in the oil and gas business in 1976 when I began my career working in the summers for Tennessee Gas in their midstream division and uh, started my company, Reef Exploration, in 1987. And shortly thereafter, you know, your book, The Prize, came out, and uh, which I consider to be the Bible of the oil and gas industry. And in fact, I, um, you know, required all my new employees to, you know, I actually bought the book on VHS. <laughs> I don't remember whether there was six VHS tapes or 12 at that time. But uh, anyway, I required all my new employees to uh, watch the prize to kind of get an understanding of the oil and gas business because I know it tells the history of oil and gas and how, you know, the world wars that we had in the country were affected by oil and gas. And uh, so, you know, I would suggest that everybody get a copy of that book as well. But I know you have a new book coming out, The New Map. I'd like for you to kind of give our you know, listeners, a little bit, uh, an overview of that. Sure. Thank you, Micah. I have to say, I, first, thank you for uh, the use you put the prize to uh, your new employees. Uh, as I travel around the world, even, you know, you go to the Middle East, you go to China, uh, I'm always amazed to find that the prize is kind of, you know, if I can say this, sort of like a Bible, that people starting the industry, even today, uh, begin with the prize. And uh, the head of one of the, in one of the major Middle East countries told me his first two weeks on the job, he was just told to sit at his desk and read the prize. So, um, you know, when you write a book, you don't really realize the impact it can have for years and decades to come. So the new map is uh, very much in the tradition of the prize, but the world has changed, as, as you know, and your listeners know, so dramatically. So I try to tell this book in terms of what's happening to the oil and gas, the energy industry, 
put it in context of geopolitics with Russia, with the Middle East, with China. Of course, all this talk about energy transition and uh, what, what kind of cars will drive in the future. But the starting point has to be uh, the shale revolution in the United States, which has been a truly disruptive uh, uh, industry. And I think people know parts of it, but I tried to bring that whole story together and introduce uh, to both people who are in the industry and people who are not in the industry, how it all happened and what an immense impact it has had. Yeah, and I agree with you. And, you know, especially in today's, you know, topsy-turvy world and highly political, you know, environment that we live in. I mean, obviously, uh, we've got actual politicians ta- out there talking about, you know, banning shale fracking. And, and so can you talk a little bit about that of how? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really I, impacted. You know, when I hear, uh, you know, we do hear some politicians talk about banning fracking, I kind of have a couple of reactions. One, I scratch my head and say, why? What's their problem? Uh, and I think that they don't know that if we, you know, there are 280 million cars in the United States, about 279 million of them run on gasoline. If they succeeded in banning fracking or greatly restricting it, and the United States, which is in this extraordinary position now, would be number one in the world in terms of oil production, if our production went down dramatically, the biggest beneficiaries would be Saudi Arabia and Russia because we'd be importing a lot more oil. So I figured they never finished their sentence. A ban fracking policy is really import more oil policy. The second thing is I just don't think people understand the degree to which kind of the products of oil and natural gas are so central to our life. I think of one you know, some people who talk about banning fracking and then they go in to have their heart operated on and a stent put in their heart and the tools that put it into their heart are made out of plastic. Look around a hospital operating room. Look at the medicines that people take. And I just think there's such a lack of understanding. So I, I, I think ban fracking is kind of a, um, a a bumper sticker that, you know, gets people excited, but people haven't really thought through or don't understand the implications or something like that to happen. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of people don't really understand, you know, when they think of oil and gas, I mean, all they think of is gasoline and, you know, maybe oil that they put in their car. But as you just said, you know, there's so many products around the world right. that you are know, made out you know, of hydrocarbons. Mike, if it's really, if you, you know, put aside light trucks, just look at autos. Autos are only 20% of world oil consumption. Most people think it's, 100% of oil consumption with a little left over for jet planes. And as I said, I mean, so many people, you know, the United States, I mean, you obviously know more about the history of it than I do, but uh, just being in the business, I know that, you know, we've gone through a number of price swings in oil and gas. In fact, over the last 30 years, I mean, there's always booms and busts in the oil and gas industry. And really in 2008, 2007, United States was pretty much importing all of its oil from, you know, from overseas. And there's so much power that a lot of these countries had uh, right. over the United States. Well, and then, of course, when fracking yeah. took off and, you well, know, we became really, the number one energy producer again well, in the well, world. Let me, Mike, let me give you an example. In the book, I tell an anecdote. I don't say it's me, but it is me at a conference uh, where Vladimir Putin was speaking and in St. Petersburg in Russia. And I was asked to ask the first question. So I kind of was asking him a question about diversifying his economy, a little less reliance on oil and gas for GDP. But I mentioned shale. 
and he started shouting at me, you know, and it's not pleasant to be shouted at by Vladimir Putin in front of 3,000 people. I'll tell you that. But uh, but what he, you know, he was how bad shale is. And I think the reason he regards shale as something that will diminish uh, Russian influence and power in the world and sees shale as a great advantage for U.S. foreign policy. And there are a lot of people around the world in countries who are both friends of the United States and not who see shale as a real source of uh, a new dimension of influence and, and power for the United States in, in the world economy and in world politics. Yeah, and how does the uh, Middle East see the shale production? Do they see it as a threat also? Well, I spent some time in the region, and I think that uh, if we go back to the 2014 price collapse, shale was a disruptive technology. The growth in U.S. production was so fast and so large in an oversupplied market and I think uh, that was the moment when, you know, the then Saudi oil minister, uh, Ali Naimi, pulled the plug and said, let the market balance the market. Uh, also, because he couldn't get the Russians on board to do anything. They, they didn't want to. They didn't want to make room in the market uh, for, for U.S. shale. Uh, I think my assessment that I have in the new map is that the key Middle East producers now see U.S. shale as part of the market. And we can talk in a few minutes about how shale will develop from here. I think the Russians are more divided. I have uh, in the new map uh, some quotes from uh, uh, Igor Sechin, who heads Rosneft, which is the largest old Russian oil company, basically saying, why are we giving up market share to U.S. shale? So I think in a sense that the Russians have been more um, more focused on the political aspects of shale in the Middle East countries, and I think countries like Saudi Arabia and uh, and Abu Dhabi have accustomed themselves to say this is part of the market. But it does get to the question, and I know it's on the minds of many of your listeners, as to where does shale go from here, and we could talk about that. Yeah, let's do that. Let's kind of talk about what the future looks like for shale. I say the shale was a revolution, and then I say in the new map that the shale needs a second revolution. And that second revolution, and this is highly relevant to all of your listeners, is the relationship between producers and investors. And that was true before COVID came, that the investors were basically saying, you know, we don't want growth at any cost. It's growth at what cost? We want a return uh, on our investment. Uh, we want money back. And I, and I think that you saw and, you know, many of your listeners were already pivoting to move in that direction, dividends, return of capital to uh, in, in investors, uh, flexible dividends and so forth. Uh, and then along came COVID, which created, of course, a huge crisis for the shale industry, as it has, of course, for the country at large and for the world at large. And uh, in the chapter called The Plague, I describe what happened to the industry and how desperate the situation was uh, by April of uh, 2020 when prices went into negative territory. And, uh, and of course, if prices have come back, but now at least as we're talking today, they're weakened again somewhat. So I think the challenge that was there for the shale sector is still there, and it's a, obviously a bigger challenge than it was before the uh, COVID epidemic because We've seen demand growth is coming back, but it's also stalled out. And at, at IHS Market, where I work, we, we track 
15,000 gasoline stations a week. And we see that, uh, you know, in April, demand for gasoline was down 50% basically in the United States. Now it's down about 17 or 18% from last year, and it seems to have plateaued. And of course, that uh, reflects back into into demand and to prices, which we're seeing today. In fact, I was at a conference, you know, before the first of the year last year. And as you said, companies were already starting to, you know, want more return on their investment in the days of the going out and building your reserves by 15% and flipping it to a large company were pretty much over with. So uh, there was a lot of pressure. And um, what do you think the price of oil needs to be in order to have this second revolution that you're talking about in Shell? You know, our own analysis suggests that because we won't have the same rapid decline because there's just less investment, right. you know, we probably you probably need prices at least in in the 40s to sustain it. Uh, high 30s, you know, just puts a lot of pressure on it. $50 would be great, $50, $55. But I think that's what we need. But of course, you know, we're in, we're still in the crisis. And uh, mm-hmm. there's a tendency to, you know, kind of generalize what does this mean for the future? Uh, a lot depends upon, you know, what happens by next spring when hopefully there is a vaccine and, you know, we start to heal the wounds in the economy and demand starts to come back. We have seen, for instance, in China that demand is actually higher than it was last year at this time. So, uh, and the other thing that strikes strikes me is just how much investment has been cut and what does that mean two, three years from now when, you know, we do have a growing world economy again, when demand is going up. Will that get us back into one of those things, Mike, that you've lived through uh, several times, which is another price cycle? Yeah, I do agree because obviously just kind of the history of Shell and the production kind of curve of Shell is that, you know, when you're drilling wells, I mean, you have this flush production on the front end. And as you said, you know, I mean, new technology through uh, fracking and the completion aspects of a lot of the Shell wells has lessened that decline curve. So it does make it more economical, you know, at 45 to $55 a barrel uh, to produce that. But now that we've had this downturn, and again, we have a lot of people, a lot of uh, people that have left the industry and a lot of those jobs you know, won't come back. So I think that's going to cause prices to potentially go up substantially in the future for a while. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, the trajectory, at least right now, that we expect is, uh, you know, the U.S. Re- reaches remarkable level of 13 million barrels a day in February of 2020. You know, and then, you know, investment's been cut dramatically. Large independents have cut their budgets about 50% from what they were going to be at the beginning of the year. So we think that obviously shut-in wells come back, but then, you know, U.S. production sort of eases down to between about 10 and 10.5 million barrels a day. And then kind of in about a year from now or less than a year is when we start seeing it go up again. But we won't see those dramatic million barrel or even two million barrel a day additions we'll see. It'll be a much more modest growth. And we'd expected more modest growth even before COVID. And I think this ensures there'll be modest growth. But the point that, that I try to make in the new map is that shale is going to 
be a bulwark of the global industry going forward, whether the U.S. is at 10 million or 13 million barrels a day. Even if we're at 10 million barrels a day right now, that still makes us the world's largest oil producer. And, you know, you go back a decade ago and people would have said, you know, what are you thinking if you say, you say that? So I have a lot of confidence in the, in the industry and its resilience. Well, I do too. And I think that, uh, as I said, we, we go through these price cycles and then for a while, and, 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 and I guess we've done that throughout history. But when you talk about the new book, the, the map, I know you get into some of the, the uh, into some information about this new Cold War that's developing between the United States, Russia, and China. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that's going to sure. affect energy in the future? Sure. So, Mike, a lot of people don't know, before I wrote The Prize, I wrote a couple of other books. One is a book I did at the Harvard Business School, and before that I wrote a book called Shattered Peace about the origins of the Soviet-American Cold War. And I never expected to be writing about new Cold Wars. But I think <laughs> we see that in relationship now with Russia, and we see it more in China. And I think it's very important that people understand what's happening and what's at stake. And it was about two years ago when I was writing the book, I started to, just started to say, this starts to feel Cold War-ish and the events of the last few months have really accelerated it. And oh, I think the world has benefited from a globalized economy, open borders, rising trade, rising incomes, rising GDP. And I think we're moving into a more fragmented era. And I think understanding where the tensions are between the U.S. and China uh, is very important, and there's an important energy dimension to it, which is part of what I explain and, and when I talk about the new map, really do uh, talk about the, the new map of tensions, but where energy plays in it. Because China, you know, we used to be the world's largest importer of oil. China is now the world's largest importer of oil, 75% of its oil. And by the way, it's become hard to believe, but an important market for exports of U.S. oil and uh, LNG that result from shale. So does China have a large amount of reserves or, I mean, in the ground or is or are they more dependent on, uh, well, they're, they're, you know, international? It's interesting. China actually has a large oil industry. It's the fifth largest oil producer in the world, but their demand is so much greater. Remember, the, you know, the Chinese sell, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent more cars every year than the United States. And so their demand has really been increasing. And so while their industry is, you know, as some of your listeners will know, a very capable industry, it can only meet part of the demand. And as I said, 75 percent of the demand is met with imports. And uh, the Chinese are very concerned about what that dependence means. And that affects, I think, their policies towards the South China Sea which is, you know, may seem far away, but it's the most important body of water for world trade. And it also happens to be the most dangerous right now because of U.S.-China standoffs. And it also fits very much into China's uh, $1.4 trillion Belt and Road program uh, of developing economic connectivity across uh, Central Asia, into Europe, into Africa, even as far as the Panama Canal. So, uh, and, you know, one difference between the Soviet-American Cold War, that was based upon nuclear weapons, uh, but the Soviet Union was not a big part of the world economy. China is a very big part of the world economy, very interdependent with the United States and other countries. 
And so that makes this relationship much more difficult and uh, problematic. I have a story in the book about the uh, big Chinese investment in Louisiana uh, for a petrochemical facility. And there's a wonderful picture. I have great pictures in the book, by the way, great pictures. And one of them is the signing of the deal in uh, in uh, this parish in in Louisiana. And that, you know, that was considered a really good thing because it created jobs. Now, you know, if a Chinese company came to invest in building factories in the United States, there'd be a lot more tension around that. Yeah, I know back when the shell play was actually, you know, in its infancies and when it was taken off, the Chinese were making large investments in a number of shell companies here in the United States. And I'm assuming that was just to understand the technology. I know that was important for them. And and by the way, they, you know, they've worked on shale. They've had some success, but I think they don't have the same kind of geology. They have water issues. They have populated areas. So, you know, they're, they have had some breakthroughs on shale, but it's, it's, it's minor compared to their overall demand. Much more important are their imports of oil and gas from the United States, from the Middle East, and indeed of key importance from Russia. Now, I know when we get into talking about LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, and of course, you know, the Trump administration has made a big push to, to get into Europe and of course to, uh, I guess, take on Russia because Russia supplies the majority of natural gas to Europe. I'm assuming that uh, that's one of the reasons why, you know, the Russians have don't like Shell here in the United States or don't like us producing that, the kind of production we produce. Is that correct? That's a that, that's a big reason. <laughs> they <laughs> they and I think some Europeans too see the U.S. opposition to uh, this controversial Nord Stream two pipeline as not motivated by kind of security concerns, but competitive concerns. And, you know, certainly when, you know, it, uh, actually one of the things I have some great pictures of Donald Trump talking about LNG, but, you know, I mean, other American presidents have gone and tried to, you know, support the sale of uh, U.S. products like airplanes. But uh, I think that Donald Trump gets credit for being uh, the world's uh, most visible and uh, influential LNG salesman. He's really been out there, there, uh, uh, you know, negotiating with the prime minister of India saying, we're trying to sell you more gas and and we're trying to get the price up a little bit. So he's representing (laughs) the companies rather than the country, but he's been a very big advocate of U.S. LNG exports. Now, I know in your book, you talk a little bit about climate concerns. So can we kind of explore a little bit about that and where all this climate, you know, I know we see a lot of it in the news today. Well, it's. I think it's, um, I mean, the energy transition is something that's very much on the minds of uh, the energy industry. You've seen the Europe, major European energy companies saying they're no longer oil and gas companies, they're uh, energy companies. The U.S. companies saying what we really want to do is be very efficient oil and gas companies, and uh, it's not clear that we would be the best uh, developers of wind or solar. But I was, you know, even on a call with a North African uh, energy company, uh, state oil company, state company last week, and they were asking, should we go into the solar business? So these questions are out there. And, you know, there's a pretty big difference between where Donald Trump is on these issues and where Joe Biden is. If you read Joe Biden's climate action plan that came out in July, 
uh, he talks, and I was, I think I was able to actually get it into the book. He talks about a two trillion dollar program to get the U.S. to net zero carbon by 2050. My own view is that we should really be talking about energy evolution, not energy transition, and that we'll have a more mixed system. But um, you know, I just I, I think that carbon capture will be important. But I think these will be issues that, uh, if there's a democratic administration, will be very important for the industry and very important for the industry to understand what the real policies are in terms of the rhetoric. I have one statistic in the book. I, I highlighted it as a footnote on a page before COVID, so it's higher. It's higher than it is now. 12.3 million jobs in the United States in the oil and gas industry. And uh, that's a very significant sector of the economy. Uh, I quote Ben Bernanke after the financial crisis saying one of the most positive, and they said the most positive thing to have happened to the U.S. economy since the financial crisis of 2008 was the shale development. So, you know, I think the industry needs to convey its economic importance uh, in this kind of, you know, so that there's a a balanced approach rather than one that is just – you know, kind of uh, one-sided in how it goes forward. Well, I agree. And in fact, you know, what I've read is, of course, and, you know, the United States has one of the lowest carbon footprints in the world now. And, uh, you know, the, the, the countries that they should be talking about are countries like China and and yeah. stuff, because yeah, even it, if the U.S. tries to be, you know, zero carbon by whatever date, you know, they're they're projecting these other countries. I mean, obviously, they're not going to follow along, which is just going to put more people in the U.S. Yeah. out of work, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, well, could make it more my, expensive for us to produce. Michael, I have two key graphs. I don't have very many graphs in the book, but I have two key ones. One shows the sort of annual carbon budget and uh, of what the world produces and what it absorbs and that, uh, that little bit extra really that comes from hydrocarbons but that builds up over time. The other one is what you're saying, the distribution of where emissions come from. And you know what, this isn't well recognized. U.S. Uh, CO2 is down to the level, you know, where it was like uh, 20, 25 years ago when our economy has more than doubled. Why has it happened? Number one reason by far is that uh, natural gas has replaced coal and electric generation, you know, and that's the kind of thing, you know, people need to understand the facts, the context, uh, you know, to understand this, as you say, uh, the U.S. has done, it's really quite incredible for the U.S. economy to, you know, to double and to, you know, have the carbon footprint that we had decades ago. That's a real achievement. And it's because of, uh, because of actually because of shale. Isn't China still pretty dependent on coal? Yeah, China kind of China is everything. China has half the wind capacity in the world, half the solar capacity. It dominates lithium battery chain. Uh, it produces like seventy, almost seventy percent of the solar panels, uh, and all those things. So they're doing all that stuff. But every month, China adds three new coal-fired plants too. So it's like, uh, you know, and about 60% of total Chinese energy, total energy is coal driven. And that's why I don't, I, I think a lot of these politicians, you know, they don't really understand the industry and they just throw these, you know, these catchwords out without really understanding, you know, what, what the U.S. has done or what the U.S. oil industry has done yeah. to 
reduce those emissions. Well, right. Well, that's why, you know, generally, you know, why did I, you know, sitting down to write a book is, um, it's, it's always harder than you think it will be. You know, every time I've done a book, I said, well, I can, you know, I can do this quickly. And then it takes, you know, years and a lot of research, a lot of uh, revision and thinking and so forth. But what I wanted to do with the new map is to say, yeah, we're going into a new future. We need a map and we need an accurate map. We need to understand how these pieces all fit together domestically, internationally, among energy sources, because otherwise you get lost in the slogans. And so I feel that the new map, you know, first I was nervous about it, but because of, I hope, the accuracy and the realism it brings, will jump with both feet uh, into this uh, into the 2020 presidential campaign and provide a framework for discussing these issues in a rational, informed way rather than an emotional way. But at the same time, you know, and also I hope along the way, people will find it a really good read. Well, I think they will. I'm certainly going to get a copy of it. And um, basically because, you know, you have a lot of, like I said, a lot of politicians throwing around a lot of different things that really don't understand what it takes to make the world run, I think. And uh, you think electric cars will eventually take over gasoline cars? Well, uh, well, I have a section of the book called Roadmap to the Future. And it was mm-hmm. really interesting. I spent time talking with the chief technology officer of Tesla, you know, which took, you know, and there's this wonderful picture in the book of Thomas Edison next to his electric car, which ended up going nowhere, and uh, Elon Musk next to his electric car. And it looks almost like their exact same physical posture, and his is going somewhere, of course. Well, I think electric cars are being driven by government policy. Automakers right. are responding to that because of the, the pressure. Uh, in Europe, there are going to be real financial penalties on companies that don't move towards electric cars. Uh, but I think, you know, you have to look at the numbers again and where you're starting from. And, uh, you know, in our work at IHS Market, and I include this in the book, we think, you know, 2050 will go from today's 1.4 billion cars to 2 billion, but and about 600,000 of them will be electric cars. The other 1.4 billion will either be hybrids or just pure gasoline cars. So, um, you know, the electric car is going to become more prominent. Uh, I think if you have a Biden administration, they'll give incentives. But one thing I wonder, if you want to get to scale, can you get to scale? Uh, Can governments afford to provide incentives at that scale? I think for those, you you know, the issue around batteries is really bringing down the cost of them. And, but I think these geopolitical issues are going to kind of be part of it. We're looking at kind of the new supply chains. And, you know, if you're moving towards electric cars, you're moving towards, a, at least a right now, a pretty high dependence on China. And that, you know, you've got to put all the pieces together. Well, that's very interesting. I didn't think of it from that aspect of it, but I certainly want to get into that when, when, I do, when the book does come out. And, uh, Well, listen, Dan, I sure appreciate you being on the show. Again, I'd like to tell all the listeners if you to get a copy of your new book. And Dan, do you uh, have any information where they can go to get a copy or is it it going to be available? Yeah, the new map uh, subtitled Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations is available, of course, from Amazon, from Barnes and Noble, from independent bookstores or at your local bookstore. Uh, And I think it's going to be readily available and uh, I hope uh, it will at least become, if not the new Bible for the energy industry, uh, at least an adjunct to it. 
and will play a role in explaining both to people in the industry and uh, and people outside it, including our political leaders, the reality of uh, U.S. energy in a global context. So, um, and I thought a long time about the title, but I think, you know, we are going into a new terrain, and I hope the new map will provide some good guidance for that. Well, I certainly look forward to getting a copy of it. Thank you very much for being on the show today, Dan. Thank you. You've been listening to The Energy Show with REI Energy. Energize your investments and maximize your tax deductions. To learn more, go to reienergy.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.